I enjoyed the neoclassical because it was so simplistic. <laughs> I, I knew knew from the very beginning it it bore no reality to the real world, and it actually was pretty useless, even for say making a decision about which kind of garbage truck to buy. When I first learned marginal revenue, marginal cost, all that, I did try to use that uh, to make the decision about the garbage trucks. But it it was so silly uh, that um, it never appealed to me in any way except that those courses were really easy. If you could do a bit of mathematics, um, it took virtually no thinking. There's always a right in quotes, answer. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today I talk with one of the original developers of modern money theory, L. Randall Ray. Dr. Ray tells the story before the story, his life before meeting Warren Mosler and Bill Mitchell in the post-Keynesian talk or PKT email forums in 1996, where MMT came to be. Dr. Ray originally set out to be a fourth grade elementary school teacher and did his student teaching in Mexico City. Since the OPEC oil crises made it difficult to start a teaching career, he instead got a job in solid waste management in Sacramento County, California. He got the job thanks to the Jimmy Carter administration's comprehensive employment. You can contact me on Twitter or Facebook, and you can email me at activistmmt at gmail.com. If you're enjoying Activist MMT even a fraction as much as I enjoy creating it, and if you're safe and secure and happen to be lucky enough to have some public deficit kicking around in your pocket, I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. For as little as a dollar a month, you'll get exclusive content and updates, several days of early access to every episode, and for some, super early access, weeks and sometimes even months in advance. You can start by going to patreon.com slash activist MMT. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Whatever you can afford, I would be very grateful. Thank you. Now, on to our conversation. He could, in both mainstream and heterodox, and despite still wanting to be an elementary school teacher, he decided to try a PhD in economics. He ended up studying under Hyman Minsky, who he was told was the best Keynesian there is, at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. 
We end today's episode by discussing Dr. Ray's November 2019 congressional testimony, which was partially in response to the March 2019 Republican resolution to denounce MMT. We look back at a particularly unfriendly set of questions that he had to endure and how the hearing that was supposed to contain many friendly faces due to a last minute vote, unfortunately, had fewer than expected. Finally, we discuss his written testimony as submitted in advance. This is a unique document written exclusively to a mainstream audience, identifying and validating their fears of deficit and debt, and then slowly walking them step by step to exactly why deficits are not fearful in the way they think, and that they are largely not even under their direct control as members of Congress. Dr. Ray calls it the best, strongest case he's ever made using data. In part two, we move on to some general MMT questions and especially focus on two subjects, the real meaning of the word productivity and an overview of the entirety of MMT, specifically from the Kansas City point of view. A full introduction will also be included before part two. Many resources, both related to part one and part two of this interview, can be found in the show notes of part one. This includes the full audio to the hearing in which Dr. Ray participated, and another, both in audio and video formats, that contains only highlights that I believe will be interesting to MMTers. You can contact me on Twitter or Facebook, and you can email me at activistmmt at gmail.com. If you're enjoying Activist MMT even a fraction as much as I enjoy creating it, and if you're safe and secure and happen to be lucky enough to have some public deficit kicking around in your pocket, I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. For as little as a dollar a month, you'll get exclusive content and updates, several days of early access to every episode, and for some, super early access, weeks and sometimes even months in advance. You can start by going to patreon.com slash activist MMT. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Whatever you can afford, I would be very grateful. Thank you. Before we get started, a small correction. Dr. Ray wanted me to mention that he believes that Warren Mosler's initial undergraduate degree was in fact engineering. Now, on to our conversation. Okay, so um, with your permission, I would like to, as much as you're comfortable, your the story of who, you know, where, how you came to economics. You're thinking before <laughs> you discovered MMT, but uh, thank you so much for coming on, and I've been waiting on quite a long time to talk with you, and I'm, I'm glad to finally be here. Okay. Um... Right, I'll begin. I, I went to University of the Pacific, which is a small private school in California. And I chose to go there because it had a cluster college arrangement. And one of the colleges was Callison College, which um, I guess you could say was sort of experimental. Or you could, you could even say it's, it was sort of a hippie school. And um, 
the one thing that really appealed to me was that sophomore year abroad went to Bangalore, India. And uh, for the older people who are listening, you know that in the late 60s, uh, there was a fascination in America among young people with uh, things India. The Beatles had gone there. So that appealed to me. And another thing was that um, the, the courses were all pass-fail. Basically, there were no required courses. You put together your own um, uh, curriculum. There was no such thing as Econ 100. A lot of them were one-off courses, whatever the professors happened to be interested in. This is undergrad you're talking about? Yeah, this is undergrad. So anyway, that, that's the sort of school I went to. I actually did not study any economics. I got a degree in social science. My plan was to be an elementary school teacher. Oh. So I also got teaching credentials. I taught in Mexico City for my um, teaching experience. Came back to California during uh, our first deep recession since the Great Depression in the early 70s. And that was a particularly bad time to try to get a teaching job. So I worked in Campbell's Hoop Factory and did some other jobs. And eventually I ended up in uh, Jimmy Carter's CETA program. What program? CETA, Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, which is sort of a New Deal style program that created jobs uh, in the public sector. Uh, So I had an early experience with uh, public job creation. That's how I got my start, really. Um, I worked in public works in the uh, later 70s, and um, I helped to formulate a curbside recycling program for Sacramento County, which was among the first in the country. There was one in Berkeley. There was one in Portland. Um, and I think one in Vermont. And where were you based? Sacramento. Okay. And uh, so I worked there for a number of years and then moved on to the California Energy Commission under Governor Brown and um, did uh, forecasting of um, uh, energy demand for the commission, which helped to... um, Uh, counter the projections that were put forward by utility companies that wanted to expand production and Governor Brown was into conservation and things like that. So that was a very exciting time. But anyway, when I um, was working uh, in public works and also at the Energy Commission, I always viewed these as temporary uh, until I found a teaching position. I still thought I was going to be an elementary school teacher. Um, what grades, if I may ask, in elementary are you interested, or were you well, interested? I in- really, yeah, I really liked uh, fourth grade, nine-year-olds, because by then you can, um, uh, you know, the way I viewed it, uh, you could teach um, a bit more academic stuff to them, and uh, generally behavior uh, was a bit better. So you weren't 
you know, being mom and dad. So anyway, that that was my preferred age. I, I also had teaching credentials to teach high school social science and, uh, funnily enough, um, girls' physical education. Cool. Um, but really, I liked elementary school. But in, anyway, uh, to maintain your teaching credentials in California, you have to do a fifth year. And in addition, I had student loans that I needed to postpone payment on. And uh, you could do that as long as you were at least half time enrolled in college. So all the years I was working, I was also taking classes, took a wide variety of classes. A lot of them had to do with children, children's nutrition, uh, child uh, psychology, things like that. I also started the to get a certification in um, water treatment management, <laughs> which was somewhat related to my job. But I found out that the my employer would pay my college fees, which weren't very much at Sacramento State College, if I took courses related to my job. So while I was working in solid waste management, I asked my boss and he said, well, why don't you try economics? Because I was doing costing for um, the recycling program and also for movement to the, well, what then were uh, sort of a new thing which is the garbage trucks with arms to pick up the, the garbage cans so that the workers didn't have to physically lift them up. Wow. I so, actually don't remember them anywhere near <laughs> that long ago, those arms. No, we, we put those in place in the 70s mm. in uh, Sacramento. So anyway, I was costing those and doing cost-benefit analysis. And um, so my boss said, you ought to try economics. As I said, I'd never taken it. So I started taking it, and um, I really liked it. And Sacramento uh, State College was an unusual place, CSUS, actually, California State University. Um, that department was unusual because it had, you know, as all departments do, it had the neoclassicals, but it also had institutionalists, and it had Marxists. So I was exposed to all of those from the very beginning. And um, I enjoyed the neoclassical because it was so simplistic. <laughs> I, I knew, knew from the very beginning it, it bore no reality to the real world. And it actually was pretty useless even for, say, making a decision about which kind of garbage truck to buy. When I first learned marginal revenue, marginal cost, all that, I did try to use that uh, to make the decision about the garbage trucks. But it, it was so silly uh, that um, it never appealed to me in any way except that those courses were really easy. If you could do a bit of mathematics, um, it took virtually no thinking. There's always a right, in quotes, answer. Um, so easy how did to- you, yeah. Sorry, how, how, how did you- I'm always curious of like, how did you know that it was nonsense back then? Because people go their whole lives not realizing that it's nonsense. I mean, I understand their paycheck makes them not understand, but <laughs> to a large degree, people just simply don't realize and MMT shocks them, you know? So what back then made you understand that it was nonsense? 
Well, I think there is a common characteristic you will find among heterodox economists. And that is that they came to economics a bit later. Hmm. I think if you start studying economics and you're indoctrinated when you're 18 years old, uh, you you either um, never really question it, or if you do question it, and I think Joan Robinson put it this way, you know, you ask your teacher, yeah, but you know, what about this? When you try to bring in some real world, and your teacher, so the teacher will say, oh no, no, don't worry about that. We study that later in economics, mm-hmm. okay? And so the later never comes. Right. And you eventually learn, don't ask those questions mm-hmm. because all you do is upset your teacher. Right. So when you're young, I think that that's what's, what happens. Okay. And so it's, it, in my experience, it's pretty common to find that heterodox economists were older when they started studying, at least at the graduate level. Hmm. They didn't start at age 24 uh, or even 22, sorry, 22, when uh, most people start a graduate program. And I, w- I was quite a bit older than okay. that. So I think that that's why I had been out in the, in the world. And, um, and also my background was um, very pluralistic because of the undergraduate school I went to. But um, so I was exposed also to institutional economics. Uh, Mark Toole was the professor there. And he also had just become the editor of the main institutional journal, the Journal of Economic Issues. And he was involved in the uh, main institutionalist um, uh, national uh, association, which is AFI, Association for Evolutionary Economics, and the other one, which is AFIT. Association for Institutional Thought. So he was a very active uh, participant and an extremely good teacher. What was his uh, name Mark, again? Mark Toole. Okay. One of the best lecturers that I ever had. Um, and then uh, there were um, two Marxists and some uh, very progressive people who were sympathetic uh, in the department. So I was exposed to that. I started off, uh, I had to take the some of the undergrad courses because I hadn't had any econ. My intention was to go straight into the master's program, but they, the chair wouldn't let me do that. And of course, it turns out he was right. Hmm. You wouldn't survive without the uh, the basic courses. So I took the O's, and um, they also were unusual because they still had a large requirement of history of thought. So with one of the Marxists, Joe Fury, uh, I read from Adam Smith up through Marx, Hmm. all the original works. And then uh, the other Marxist, John Henry, taught the second uh, semester course, which was uh, after Marx, uh, neoclassical economics, and through Keynes. So I read Keynes with him the first time I read Keynes's general theory. And that really interested me. Um, so to, to cut, make this a bit shorter, uh, I took virtually every course. I think I had 170 hours in economics. 
Mm. All of that while working in the county government and then the state government. And uh, Mark Toole especially and John Henry were encouraging me to go on to a PhD program. I still did not see uh, a career change. I was still thinking elementary school. Uh, But uh, I decided to give it a try. I applied and I had come across Kenneth Boulding, who's a well-known institutionalist, but he, he worked in many different areas. Uh, he was, um, later I got to know him well. He um, founded several disciplines in economics. Um, he was just interested in everything. And so he fascinated me. He was at Boulder. So Boulder was my first choice, and I did get a pretty good offer from them. But he was not actually in the econ department. He was at maybe in behavioral sciences or something like that. And John Henry warned me that the econ department was going to be very mainstream. My uh, other really good offer was Washington University, where Minsky uh, taught. And I did not, I don't think I had read Minsky at the time, but Henry said, Minsky is the best Keynesian there is. Hmm. And you, you like Keynes. So you really should go there, not Boulder. So I uh, decided to go ahead and do that. Can I I ask uh, what, what appealed to you particularly about Keynes? Uh, I just thought that uh, the the macro, you know, as I understood it, uh, just made the most sense of any approach that uh, I had been exposed to. Okay. I think I had a pretty good understanding of Keynes. I mean, the, the general theory is a very difficult book. Henry is a very good teacher. And I think I had a pretty good understanding. Okay. So I went to Washington University and studied with Minsky. It turned out that um, uh, my first job was uh, in Denver. So I was just down the road from Boulder. Hmm. And um, at Denver, uh, Mark Toole had gone to Denver. Uh, at Denver was a home to institutional economics. And uh, it turned out that the, the person who taught Mark Toole was J. Fag Foster. And Foster had, had died, I think, in 76, so he wasn't there. But his wife, Gladys Foster, was completing her Ph.D. about the time that uh, I was completing my Ph.D. She lived in Denver. I got introduced to her by Tracy Mott, who was the, the heterodox economist at Boulder. Okay. And um, we used to meet at her house every month to discuss institutional economics, and Kenneth Boulding would come down. So in a way, I got the, the best of both worlds. I had Minsky as my professor, and I got to know Boulding very well and would meet with him, and we would discuss institutional economics, uh, really until um, he died. So that's basically uh, how I got 
into both post-Keynesian and institutional economics. Okay. What did you see the relationship between Keynes and institutionalism at that time? Well, the, uh, it's very, very close. Um, the macro of institutional economics is Keynes. Marx, Veblen, uh, Marx, of course, is the, the father of Marxism. Veblen is the father of institutional economics. Keynes is the father of Keynesian economics, true Keynesian economics. So we sure. call it post-Keynesian to distinguish it from the bastard version of Paul Samuelson. And all three of them really had the same foundation to their approaches. Uh, it's called the monetary theory of production. So it's a, a particular approach to production that um, sees uh, money as being the foundation of the productive system. That is, um, the easiest way to explain it is for anyone who's been exposed a little bit to Marx is MC M prime production, the production process in a capitalist economy starts with money. You have to have money to hire labor and buy the raw materials to produce commodities. So that is the movement from M to C. Uh, and the only reason capitalists produce anything is to sell it. They, they have, you know, a shoe producer has no interest in shoes. Hmm. They have an interest in profits. So they've got to sell the shoes. So that's the movement from C to M prime. The prime means the money you end up with has to be greater than the money you start with, right. or the production was a failure. So it's for profit production. Hmm. All three of these uh, fathers uh, had exactly that approach. So for Veblen, he called it the theory of business enterprise. Uh, in other words, it's for profit production. And Keynes actually used terminology very similar to Marx in his early drafts of the general theory. But he uh, dropped that and reoriented the way that he presented the ideas in the general theory. So you, you don't see monetary theory production in so explicitly in the general theory, but it's there in the background, and it was explicit in the drafts. So they all had the same approach. They, they had very similar views of money and the role that money plays in the economy. And that is carried through into uh, our um, MMT approach. So I think all, all three of the, you, I mean, you could choose any one of these three, and you're going to reach pretty much the same uh, end result. Uh, I, I was more influenced by Keynes. Uh, Bill Mitchell was more influenced by Marx. But we, you know, we come together. We have no fundamental disagreements at all. I don't know exactly. I, I may be saying this wrong, but I'm pretty sure that you'll get a sense of what I'm trying to get out here. Is like mainstream says that the. I don't understand when when I'm when I hear that non-post-Keynesian 
say that money isn't even considered in the sense that MMT considers money. Do yeah. you, can you, can you? Sure. Yeah. There, there's a very long tradition in um, neoclassical economics of analyzing the economy as if there were no money. Uh, so it's called a barter economy. Um, so the, the very simple version of it, and you can find many statements, Milton Friedman made the statement. He said, you can analyze the capitalist economy as if it, were a, uh, it was a barter economy uh, with exchange between Robinson Crusoe and Friday. All the elements of the capitalist economy are contained in that Robinson Crusoe story. That's what Friedman says. Um, so that's sort of the what you tell your freshman students, that um, we can analyze our, our modern capitalist economy as if it, were it was just this simple exchange economy. Robinson Crusoe has a, a banana and uh, Friday has a fish and uh, they need to make an exchange, okay? In the more rigorous versions, general equilibrium theory, there literally is no money. So they don't just have a simple, you know, two commodities, two people. They can add more commodities. They can add more people. But the exchange is always real exchange. It's one type of commodity uh, versus another type of commodity. We don't have money prices. We have relative prices, how many bananas per coconut. Mm. Uh, and so we can add in, you know, theory, uh, many, many different commodities. And we have a whole bunch of different relative prices, one for each exchange between two different commodities. That, that really literally is the way general equilibrium theory uh, proceeds. There is no money. And it goes even a little bit more ironic than that because, you know, they recognize in the real world we do use money. And so they, it would be nice if you could put money into these models and get the same results. And it turns out you can't. As soon as you put money into the models, the whole thing just falls apart. Okay. It doesn't work. You don't get equilibriums. Uh, equilibrium is a, a vector of relative prices that clear all the markets. Mm -hmm. That will not happen if money exists. So it's sort of funny that they're, they're the most rigorous model that the neoclassical economists have completely falls apart if money is used. And that is supposed to, you know, as Friedman says, supposed to be an adequate way to analyze the capitalist economy when it's actually been rigorously proven <laughs> that it will not work if money is used. And we do use money in capitalist economies. Okay. So it, it, that's, that is the contrast between neoclassical economics. Of course, they do try to put money in because they want to be able to talk about money. They want to be able to talk about monetary policy. They want to be able to talk about how the money supply affects the economy. But it always has to be done in a very ad hoc way uh, because they can't explain why money would be used in those economies. So money is the lubricating of the barter 
That's, yeah, what they, that's what they call money is the, just the lubrication of the barter process. Yeah. It, it can't be more than a medium of exchange, but it's hard to explain why you need a medium of exchange in their models. Okay. Okay. All right. So back to what we were talking about before, I'm, I'd like to ask, you wanted to be an elementary school teacher. I believe that your wife is some is a, is a teacher. I don't know what level, but oh, no, no, she, she's also an economic professor. Oh, an economics professor. Okay. I don't remember the term that you used. I got my wife's an elementary school teacher. Um, I actually got a degree in elementary education as well, for, uh, but oh. I, I'm not going to use it. I'm just not going to use it. Um, uh, I'd like to know what uh, does that experience or that training in any way, uh, how does that contribute to your views of economics now, your views of the world now? Mm -hmm. I don't really know. I, I think going through a school of education, it does make you a little bit more aware of um, teaching and teaching methodology. And a common complaint is that um, people go through PhD programs and the majority want to become professors. Now that that's not true of everyone that gets a PhD, but the majority do. And maybe the majority don't make it, but a very large percentage of PhDs do end up teaching. And uh, their complaint is, you know, we were never taught how to teach. And that is true. So I think it, it probably helps a little bit. I'm not claiming I'm a great uh, college professor. But I did study how to teach, so pedagogy, and most PhDs do not do that. Okay, so it's it's how you do it as opposed to your your specific views. Um, okay, so could you could you link up the story that you told us uh, to the nineteen ninety six the PKT forums, the post Keynesian talk forums, where you met Warren Mosler and Bill Mitchell and so on? Yeah, well, so I was writing in the institutionalist and post-Keynesian traditions. My dissertation was more a bit more focused on the post-Keynesian literature because I was writing on this new idea. Well, I mean, a revived idea. And actually, that's what I was doing, showing there was nothing new about it. It was revived, uh, called endogenous money. The idea, well, to put it in... Uh, this uh, terminology that Paul Krugman has been using to actually dismiss us. Uh, banks create money out of thin air, which is absolutely true. And anyone who studies banking knows it's true. But people like Paul Krugman uh, want to make fun of us because we believe this thing, that it happens to be true. Uh, so the whole deposit multiplier story, fractional reserve story of banking is wrong. So that's what my dissertation was. And um, my first book, 1990, is probably the only prominent macroeconomist who still believes it. It's the most bizarre thing uh, because it's... Um, so I'm talking about, I'm writing in the mid-80s and it's now accepted by, I think, all central bankers in the developed world, at least. And Paul Krugman is still living in 1985. Very strange. So anyway, that was my dissertation and first book. But I also wrote a lot of institutional stuff. I published a lot in Mark Toole's journal that I already mentioned, the Institutionalist Journal. I went to the Institutionalist meetings, AFI and AFIT. 
I was some point I was the president of AFID. I don't remember the year right now. Hmm. So heavily involved in the institutional economics too at uh, Denver. Pretty much just carrying on with post-Keynesian and endogenous money up to 96. When uh, I think PKT, I don't know the year that it began. Seems to me it was probably 94, 93, but I haven't seen um, the the earliest um, uh, posts on PKT for a very long time. So it really all the uh, all the major heterodox uh, economists were on that uh, in the early years, and so we were discussing the the typical things heterodox economists discuss: um, post Keynesian, institutionalist, Marxist. Until uh, people would uh, just as they do now. <laughs> get upset and, and quit and new people would come in. So uh, by, by 96, a lot of the prominent people who had joined uh, in the very beginning had left. Um, like any of these open forums, <clears throat> they sort of got attacked by uh, Austrians, um, are just plain nutty people, free market types who just wanted to cause trouble. So a lot of people would get fed up and um, stop participating because it was very hard to have a serious discussion because of a few individuals who would post tremendous amounts of nonsense. And this is back when the internet was very slow. Um, I remember in 94, I was living in Italy and it, it could, it could take me oh, five minutes to just to load someone's comment, you know? So, uh, so people would get disgusted and some of us would call for moderating, but the, uh, the people who had created it didn't want to moderate it. Um, and so there were, there were lots of problems. So in, in any event, by the time Warren came on and, 96. A lot of the prominent people had left, but some were still there. And uh, Warren uh, started posting, and maybe that serious discussion continued maybe for a year. And then uh, I think I was uh, not very active, even at the time that Warren was posting, because I was sort of disgusted with all the crazies and it, it sort of fell apart uh probably o- over the next year or two okay okay uh when warren came in did he ha- immediately try and just as part of, na- of natural discussion and then he brought up his big ideas or did he immediately go in with those ideas he came to pkt because he had the ideas <laughs> Now, he may have been reading, you know, in the background before he posted anything. I, I don't know the answer to that. But it, from his very first posts, he was laying out what became MMT. 
Okay. Uh, January of 96, I believe, is his first one. Within two months, he had laid it all out. And he came there, I think, with that mission. He was directed to it by Arthur Laffer. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> yes. Because I'm not sure if you seeing him in person or corresponding, but uh, Laffer was listening to him and said, you know, um, that sort of sounds like these, you know, I don't know if he said crazy, but like post-Keynesians. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe he knew there was a PKT, that I'm not sure. But somehow either Laffer directed him to PKT or he discovered PKT when he found out about post-Keynesians. That's pretty remarkable um, that Art Laffer is a significant footnote in the history of MMT. <laughs> yep, that's right. <laughs> um, do you know if Warren got his economics degree before he came in or after yes. he... Before, before. Oh, yeah. Years before. He's older than me. So he must have been a 1960s, I think it's University of Connecticut graduate of... Um, Econ. I think he once told me he started in physics, but econ was easier, <laughs> so he switched. I think that's what he said. Or maybe it was engineering. You said that I was curious about Warren's economics degree because, as you said before, which I think makes sense, is basically the more practical experience you have before you start an economics degree, the, the less likely you are to become mainstream. So I was wondering if you know he had a lot of real-life financial economic experience, which I think allowed him to think outside of the box, outside of formal education. I, you know, I really don't, don't remember him commenting on his undergrad experience. He, he does occasionally um, use neoclassical micro theory. And I assume that he learned that in his undergraduate years, but I don't remember him ever saying, you know, oh, I knew it was all nonsense when I took it. I, I don't know the answer to that. But um, he got his degree and then he went into finance. So as far as I know, he was a young, um, a young student, you know, the normal student age. Okay. Okay. Um, is there anything else you think needs to be added to that before we move on to a different subject? Well, uh, Warren came on in um, January of 96. As I said, I wasn't really act, that active on PKT. Bill was a bit more active than I was, but I was reading what Warren was writing and um, a lot of it made sense to me. And I think he and I had a discussion offline and he asked me if I would send him my writings. As he said, uh, what I was saying, uh, a lot of it was making sense to him. So I sent him virtually everything, including my 1990 book. After some time, he wrote back to me and said he would like to help sponsor my next book. I uh, think I had one baby and possibly another baby on the way. And uh, I didn't want to take on a, a big thing like that. I sort of let it go. And sometime later, he wrote back to me again and said um, he was serious, 
that he could provide uh, financial support for the next book. And I, I remember one of my responses to him was, uh, Warren, you know that academic books don't make any money. <laughs> <laughs> because he was saying he'd give an advance against the royalties. <laughs> and I said, these books don't make money. <laughs> and he said, but this will be a bestseller. <laughs> and I said, Warren, I don't think so. <laughs> he said, look, I can afford it if I don't get repaid. It's fine. So I said, well, what do you expect in return? And he said, I just want to be able to read the draft chapters and I will comment on them. And if you don't like what I say, fine, ignore it. If you think I'm right, go ahead and use it. And um, so I agree. I think I bought myself out of a course and I started, started writing in um, possibly 96 and most of the writing in 97. And it, it worked exactly the way Warren said. He would comment and usually he was right. <laughs> um wow. Ask how much influence did his comment have on your book? Oh, a lot, a lot. So I would bring in so the the basic outline, uh, with one exception, is very similar to his. Um, what I did was add the literature and the history. So I read up. I'd, I had read a bit on money history before, but I read a lot more. I read a lot more of the um, literature, the, the institutional detail, like Warren says, um, you know, taxes drive money. Uh, uh, the government spends the currency, but we, we know that uh, modern governments don't spend currency. Okay. So getting into the details of how the government really spends today and um, I think uh, um, Stephanie came to Denver, Stephanie Bell, who became Stephanie Kelton, came to Denver to spend a semester with me, then uh, continued to work with me while I was writing the book. And she looked in detail about the operational details about how the U.S. government spends and was writing a draft paper, and that that was adding to what Warren was saying, adding the details, and I used uh, some of her work in the book. Her 1998 uh, paper, and Taxes and Bonds, Sales, Finance, Government Spending. Yeah, that's right. Um, so there's a chapter in the book where I thank her uh, for that. Um, the one place where uh, I was not on board with Warren was on um, the exchange rates, the uh, importance of flexible exchange rates. And that is somewhat minimized in the 98 book. And the main reason wasn't that I necessarily thought he was wrong. It was that I wasn't comfortable writing about it okay. because I'm, I'm an American. <laughs> in economics courses in America, you never get to the chapters on exchange rates and trade <laughs> <Interesting>. <laughs> because the U S was essentially a closed economy. 
mm-hmm. uh, until the mid eighties. And so I had never studied it. I, I knew almost nothing about exchange rates and trade. So I wasn't comfortable writing about it. Okay. But over the years, um, I've added more and I become more aligned with um, Warren's views on that. All right, great. Um, unless there's anything else, um, would you care to move on? Hey, well, uh, talk about um, in between 96 and 97, I'm writing the book, corresponding with Warren. Um, Warren had posted on PKT a request for an intern. Mm. He, he had written his soft currency economics uh, pamphlet, and he wanted someone to review it and then later to provide references to the literature. Actually, before you continue, let me tell you, I okay. just spoke with Matt uh, last oh. Wednesday, and he okay. gave the long version of how okay. Pavlina, <laughs> a very interesting story of how Pavlina said, can I have a paid internship long before, long after all paid internships were already gone. But luckily, <laughs> Matt, luckily Warren came into the picture and then, you know, it, it's a really good story, but just letting it you know. Okay, good. All right. So, so anyway, that's how um, uh, Pavlina got involved, but it's also how I got involved with Matt. <laughs> so, oh, okay. Oh, uh, so you he, met through Pavlina essentially. Well, I, I met Matt on um, PKT. I, I saw his um, post, and he posted some other things. He posted about Africa and so on. I had never met him, and I did not know him at the time. Um, I didn't see him in PKT forums. Yes. Think. And um, so he was um, one of the people who also was um, – sort of siding with Warren and finding evidence to support Warren. And so they were becoming close and we had an opening at Denver. And um, I encouraged uh, Matt to apply and um, Warren came up with the idea of a center. He said, you know, I'm not, he said, "I'm, I'm not trying to influence the hiring process or anything. Uh, he said, but, you know, if you and Matt were both there at Denver, I would be willing to fund a center. So we talked about that and I presented it to the department and repeated that, uh, you know, this, this was separate from the hiring decision. Uh, if um, they chose someone else, then uh, we could um, uh, work out with Warren an arrangement to see if we can fund another position. And we presented this to the administration at Denver and sort of went back and forth. And I had already arranged a leave to go to the Levy Institute. I had spent a year there before and I was going to go back uh, so that I could spend time uh, writing the book and also uh, being with Hyman Minsky, who had retired and moved to Levy. Uh, unfortunately, he died in 96. Okay. And my leave started in 97, okay. um, but I still wanted to go. So we decided to go ahead and start the center at Levy with the, the hope that um, we could work things out and move it to Denver. And... Uh, 
as a footnote, I think the person that we hired was actually Mariana Mazzucato, <laughs> who's, who has become a huge star. And I knew she was a star first time I saw her. This is going to be a star. So she didn't stay at Denver too long. But um, I think that's who was hired. Matt came to Levy with me. We started the center there. We tried to work things out. It didn't work out at Denver. So we were going to stay at Levy. And then um, the uh, the main post-Keynesian at UMKC was retiring. And I knew him, and I had been a visiting professor at UMKC. And uh, the, so, someone in the department called me up and said, would you be interested? And I said, said I don't think you would be because you've got a great job, you know, and, but uh would you be interested? Uh, and we have a PhD program. I said, yeah, I might be. I said, would you be interested in having a center uh, with uh, Matt Forstadter? They took that to their dean, and their dean, I think, pretty much immediately said, yes, let's do it. And so uh, eventually uh, Denver said no, and UMKC said yes. And they had a PhD program, which was very appealing because if you can't train PhD students, it's very hard to impact the discipline right. because you're, you're not going to be putting out directly into the classrooms. Right. And you address that in your report on the front, and I'll, I'll link to that in the description. That's exactly what you talk about. Yeah. So... Um, uh, you uh, you know you can still teach undergrads and they can go on to become MMTers, but there's a lot of slips along the way between uh, having a great undergrad and them being able to get through a PhD program where they're doing nothing but studying neoclassical economics. Right, uh, it's very hard for them. So anyway, that that was appealing, and that's why we ended up at UMKC. Okay, great. Uh, all right, so let's talk about your let's talk about your uh, congressional testimony. Um, so, I sent you that excerpt with the pleasant fellow from North from South Carolina. Um, what was his name? I don't recall at the moment. I don't remember either. <laughs> but but uh, but you remember the encounter, and I'm gonna I'll I'll put the audio in in here so people can hear it. Um, Norman, Representative Norman from South Carolina. Um, so actually, before, uh, Mr. Ray, well, let me ask you, have, have you ever run a private business? Uh, no. Okay, so you've never had to hire, uh, make a payroll, uh, balance, uh, I guess other than your, your, your household budget, you never had to balance, make a product or um, use... Uh, make sure things you, you, you're making a profit so that you can pay the police, you can pay our so schools, you can pay our a, first responders. Partially a result You've never of done the that. Republican resolution in March 2019 to to you know destroy MMT or whatever they however they phrased it. Um, so this hearing in November of 2019, you were at, and you know I, I don't didn't really get the sense that there was a lot of open-mindedness to learning MMT. Uh, but there was one, there was one confrontation in particular where he asked you some really strong, misleading questions. And, uh, have you ever run a business? Your answer was no. 
did you so you did, then he therefore said well therefore you've never made a profit you've never made a product so you could get a profit so that you could pay police and schools and first responders and your answer was that's correct and then how much will the green new deal cost he like he forced you to put a number on it and i was uh i can appreciate the position that you were in it's like you have to choose your battles you have to choose when to walk away you have to choose you know, it's just an extremely difficult situation. This person is not here with an open mind. This person is here to influence his people to that you're nuts. And it's very reminiscent of experiences that I think people like myself have online. And so I, I wanted to ask your thinking behind those responses, like, well, number one, like, would you do any of it differently? But it's like, you know, your questions don't make sense. I, you know, part of me is like, I wish, I wish I could say your questions don't make sense. There's, I can't answer them in the way that you're asking these questions, like the Green New Deal. How much would it cost? How much would it cost only matters in the context of how much it would prevent us from real costs and financial costs. And uh, also what would the benefits be if we do it as well? So, you know, basically only looking at one side of the transaction. And the other side of it is, did you ever run a business? And therefore, you can't use your money to pay the police and first responders and for education. And it's like, you know, you're comparing an issuer and a user. But within the context that you are at, there's only so much that you can say. So I would like to get your sort of looking back on that situation and what your thinking was. And, you know, because I think it applies to like activists online and even just in person in dealing with these kinds of conversations. Well, yes, um, I had done a testimony before, um, 10, 15 years ago, and it was completely different. It, the, the people there actually were interested in the topic. And it, it, it actually was on um, oh, the, the possible impacts of immigration on um, uh, job prospects for uh, low-wage workers. And Democrats and Republicans, of course, just like at this more recent one, uh, on different sides of the issue, uh, but they, they did appear to actually be interested <laughs> in the testimony. Okay. This is in Congress uh, again. And, yeah. Uh, and so that is what I had expected. And uh, the chair of this um, committee told me that that's in uh, emails. It said uh, that um, these things had gone fairly well. They were not very partisan. This was a continuing uh, in what he had been trying to do, expanding the scope of his committee and so on. And so I went there with the belief that that is what was going to happen. We knew that uh, a conservative organization had put together talking points for the Republicans, and I had seen them. And, and everything that the Republicans said that you see uh, were in the talking points. So I had seen those. Uh, and, but also, um, I think a lot of times folks up here in the swamp 
get confused and they think of government funded, government spending, but it's not government funded, it's not government spending, it's not government debt, it's taxpayer spending, taxpayer funded, and taxpayer debt. On the committee supposed to be there. But what happened was there was a, uh, a sudden, um, I think it was a vote, and uh, a bunch of the Democrats. It's it hard for you to tell when you're just looking at what the camera is focusing on, but the Democratic side was almost empty. Oh. <laughs> so I had expected to get some good questions from the Democratic side mm-hmm. and really had very little. Mm-hmm. Um, Actually, I'd like to put in a very quick aside that I'm pretty disappointed in Rokana. Yes, I was disappointed with that too. I had expected much better. And uh, the questions mostly went to uh, Jared. And I had uh, been. That was the one. Uh, there was, you were surrounded by two, and I, 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 maybe I'm wrong, but my, inst- my instinct says that the two that surrounded <laughs> you were very nice fellows who were deficit doves. And then there was the gentleman two away from you on your left yes. who was. I don't know what he was, an Austrian or something, but he was a very severe, you know, dead is bad, China is bad guy. That's, I don't remember which one. I think Jared was there. John, yeah, John Taylor it was the Republican guy. Um, he's okay. known for the Taylor rule. So nothing he said was surprising. It's exactly what you would expect. He's actually a very nice guy. Oh, uh, he seems like a, a nice fellow if you don't depend on him for <laughs> <yes>. policy. <laughs> I mean, before and after, oh, and he came up to me afterwards and said, hey, I'm really interested in this stuff. Do you guys have any empirical work on the Green New Deal? I said, yes. And he said, okay, good. I'll go look for it. <laughs> so he's, he's, I've met him before. Uh, he knew my name. Uh, okay. He's fine. You know, I, nothing was surprising. Okay. Uh, Jared was very good. Jared is sort of the go-to guy. So he's done this many, many times, and all of those Democrats knew him, so they kept asking him the questions. Okay. And uh, Blanchard had been a very mainstream uh, neoclassical economist who has seen the light. And so, he, you know, given his background, he was very good. So both of them were, were good and um, uh, pretty much on the right side, but they're not MMT and, and probably sure. never will be. Right. Uh, so anyway, and plus, I considered myself to be a guest, and um, I didn't want to get into uh, uh, back and forth arguing with stupid people. <laughs> so if I did it again, yes, I would be like Jared. Towards the end, he said, "You can interrupt them," <laughs> uh-huh. and I. You know, I did not think that that would be appropriate. But next time I would, I would, mm-hmm. I would have asked him, you know, well, running a country isn't actually not like running a business. The, the other moronic uh, statement was by another guy who said, my dad was a businessman and uh, he was a great businessman. He was, he was such a good businessman that when he died, uh, his business had no debt. Well, anyone who has studied businesses knows that is a very poorly run business. Mm. <laughs> if, if you're never borrowing, you're never growing. Mm. You know, 
dying with no debt mm, is not a good not a good business strategy. You know, okay. all the successful firms are deeply in debt. Now, mm-hmm. of course, there's too much. You can be in too much debt, but having zero debt is stupid business. <laughs> you know? Interesting. Okay. Uh, okay. Anything else regarding that? Uh, regarding your testimony, the experience of being there. Um. No, I. I would be more willing to interrupt them and uh, to uh, make a statement. The uh, you know after they they left, um, and it was just the co-chairs. Uh, this the discussion was much better, and so in the end, I was able to say pretty much what I wanted to say, but uh, it comes at the very end. Okay. Uh, One more question about your uh, written testimony. I was reading your written testimony and for like three quarters of it, I was like, why are you talking about deficits? Why are you talking? Why are you playing on by their rules? Why are you? It was just like the whole time. And then by the last couple of pages, I was like, oh, you're, you're, validating their position and walking them step by step very slowly to the truth. That's what you were doing. Yeah. That's it's written to a completely different audience. Can you just talk about that a little bit? And did anyone give you feedback? Well, yes. What I wanted to do was to make the case just with the data. I, I think that it's the, the best, strongest case that I ever made using data Hmm. to show that none of the orthodox fears of deficits are validated by the data. Uh, So that that is what I uh, had set out to do. I uh, had started writing that with the intention of not mentioning MMT. Because that, you know, raises so many uh, alarm bells. Uh, shuts, shuts them down. Even with Democrats. Right. And so that's what I was going to do. Uh, so I, I sent it to the staff and they said, you know, uh, actually, we do want to discuss MMT. The co-chairs want to discuss it. I was a little skeptical. And I think in the end, that showed <laughs> that... Really, they didn't. I think the staff wanted it discussed, but I don't really think the politicians did. No, it was Um, very unfriendly. Yeah. So I I think in the end, the data, just using the data, was a good strategy. Now, the the Republicans wanted to bash MMT. They didn't want to discuss it. They just wanted to come with the prepared statements and and bash it. And they're not interested in the data anyway. But I, I thought... It's going to be in the congressional record. And so it's available for mm-hmm. anyone who, who wants to see it. And of course, it's also on Levy. So, sure. yes. And the I, Levy I, version has a really good uh, question from Ilhan Omar and your, your detailed response to that. Oh, too. yeah, because she wrote me afterward. So uh, there was a little bit of correspondence afterward, also with the, the, the Democratic co-chair um, afterward on the data. So... I don't know. Data alone is never convincing. Um, there's only it can only go so far. People have to have an open mind, 
but I think it's useful to have it. And uh, uh, some of this came from Eric Tamoyne. He all he had a great piece in Challenge magazine. So I think it helps, but by itself, it, it's not convincing. Right. The uh, one of the just the f- sort of facts that I that I found most surprising in your uh, written congressional testimony was the idea that the existing laws or pers- or the automate the automated you know, like taxation, the counter-cyclical taxation and so on. That's the biggest influence on the increasing size of the deficits. And so yeah. that that actually makes it easier for the scaremongering. Like they have to do less to make the scaremongering accurate because it's just automatically happening f- for them. Yeah, and I think it counters the, the typical belief that um, – Deficits are caused by Democrats who spend. <laughs> yeah. the, the data shows very convincingly that that is not where deficits come from. They come from poor economic performance, uh, which could be because you don't spend enough. So, um, yeah, I think that's I ha- had a feeling it was true. I wrote a piece back maybe in 2005 and I knew that. Um, Tax revenue was exploding in 2005, 2006, and that that was sucking demand out of the economy, and we were going to have a recession, which, of course, we did, the global financial crisis. So I knew that tax revenue really grows rapidly in expansions and um, falls in uh, downturns. Uh, but adding some more data to you know, the, the number of years of data demonstrates really convincingly that things have really changed to make the tax system uh, even more pro-cyclical than it used to be. Oh, I and said counter-cyclical, in, they're pro-cyclical. Well, pro, yeah, because in a boom, tax revenue goes up. Right, yeah. And, then it, yeah. and uh, spending has become less counter-cyclical um, which it, and so this is ba- very bad for stability of the economy. So right. it's contributing a lot to the instability that we see. And their scaremongering makes that even worse, obviously. Yeah. Okay. All right, great. Um, so I'd like to, before we get to the Kansas City, I have a few specific sort of unrelated questions, um, and then we'll spend the rest of our time uh, on Kansas City MMT. Yep. Okay, okay great. Um, in your report on the front, Uh, I believe it was part three. Uh, I'll put links to all this stuff. You say the following. You say our logical argument, and this is in response to Anne Mayhew's, I'm pretty sure, her uh, article, her paper in the journal that you're referring to. You say our logical argument is that from inception, a tax or similar obligation is sufficient to create a demand for the currency. We've always argued that it may not be a
Today I talk with one of the original developers of modern money theory, L. Randall Ray. Dr. Ray tells the story before the story, his life before meeting Warren Mosler and Bill Mitchell in the post-Keynesian talk or PKT email forums in 1996, where MMT came to be. Dr. Ray originally set out to be a fourth grade elementary school teacher and did his student teaching in Mexico City. Since the OPEC oil crises made it difficult to start a teaching career, he instead got a job in solid waste management in Sacramento County, California. He got the job thanks to the Jimmy Carter administration's Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, or CEDA, which was a New Deal-style public sector job creation program. It was here where he had the opportunity to take free college courses, but only if they somehow applied to his job. His boss suggested he take some courses in economics, which he did at Sacramento State College. Dr. Ray said that he really liked the mainstream courses he took because they took so little thinking as long as you could do a bit of mathematics. He says he immediately knew how unrealistic it was and to such an extent that he felt it wasn't even worthy of choosing a garbage truck which happened to be part of his subsequent job at the California Energy Commission under the Governor Brown administration. He took every course he could in both mainstream and heterodox, and despite still wanting to be an elementary school teacher, he decided to try a PhD in economics. He ended up studying under Hyman Minsky, who he was told was the best Keynesian there is, at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. We end today's episode by discussing Dr. Ray's November 2019 congressional testimony, which was partially in response to the March 2019 Republican resolution to denounce MMT. We look back at a particularly unfriendly set of questions that he had to endure and how the hearing that was supposed to contain many friendly faces, due to a last-minute vote, unfortunately had fewer than expected. Finally, we discuss his written testimony as submitted in advance. This is a unique document written exclusively to a mainstream audience, identifying and validating their fears of deficit and debt, and then slowly walking them step by step to exactly why deficits are not fearful in the way they think, and that they are largely not even under their direct control as members of Congress. Dr. Ray calls it the best, strongest case he's ever made using data. In part two, we move on to some general MMT questions and especially focus on two subjects, the real meaning of the word productivity and an overview of the entirety of MMT, specifically from the Kansas City point of view. A full introduction will also be included before part two. Many resources, both related to part one and part two of this interview, can be found in the show notes of part one. This includes the full audio to the hearing in which Dr. Ray participated, and another, both in audio and video formats, that contains only highlights that I believe will be interesting to MMTers. <laughs>